Our scripture, our scripture reading this morning is from Psalm 131. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child my soul is is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Let's pray. Father, we just come before you just so blessed, so grateful for your love, uh, for your kindness. Lord, we've done nothing to deserve it, and yet you've given everything to us. Father, I just pray that we would this morning come uh, with a humble heart, um, seeking your word and seeking to know you more, um, that you would just bless Mark um, as he preaches your word this morning, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, it is within our nature as human beings to fix circumstances that aren't going as planned. Now, if you're like me, you might work really hard. You are a fixer. You want to fix things. You want to act in a way to make everything right. I saw this when I was first married to Katie, that something was happening, and she'd come to me, and she just wanted to express herself and her frustrations, and I'd say, okay, well, how do we fix this? And she'd say, I'm not asking you to fix it. I'm asking you, asking you just to listen, but we want to fix things. And even if you're not a fixer, you want to work things as much as possible out in order to get things to happen what, the way you want it to happen. And so when trouble arises, when hardship comes, when plans go off course, our natural in- inclination is to find a way to get things back on track. Or at the very least, back on what we understand would be the right track. And if it comes to the point where there's no fixing the issue, and then we're tempted then to lean the other direction, and we'd say, well, if I can't fix it and it's not going to go my way, then I'm not even going to try anymore. I'll just let bygones be bygones. And I'm going to sit back and let things happen the way that they're going to happen. Oh, well. You see, David doesn't do either of those two things in Psalm 31. He doesn't try to fix things, but he also doesn't sit back and say, okay, Sarah, Sarah, what will be, will be. Now, this is a short psalm, three verses, and you think, Mark's going to get done in 15 minutes, and you hear the giggles. It's not going to be done in 15 minutes, because even though it's three verses long, There is so much for us to to learn in this. There There is a profound lesson for us as God's people to learn from this. So David is speaking to the people of Israel, to God's chosen people, not to the Gentiles. He's not speaking to the Persians or the Assyrians or the Philistines or anybody else. These words are for, for God's people, for those who put their hope in Him. And so He's speaking to us as God's people, those who have given their 
their faith to Christ. They are saved by grace through Christ, that we are God's children. That's who these words are spoken to. So if you're an unbeliever, or you're hearing this, and you're not a believer in God, it may not make sense how these are so profound. Because it sounds, these words, to be naive. But for the child of God, they're life-changing. And here's the hope or the, the lesson, the profound lesson that God has for us as his people, our hope and our confidence in the midst of affliction is found in the Lord. Our hope and confidence in the midst of affliction is found in the Lord. So you say, well, how, how in the world do you get that, especially with the affliction part? I mean, that's not in there. How do you get that, Mark? Well, we've got to look at the background, right? When we read and we study and try to apply God's Word to our lives, it's important to find out what the context of a passage is. And I don't know who said it. I stole it from somebody. I heard it a long time ago. A text without context is a pretext for a proof text. So a text, the Bible, a text without the context of that passage then leads us as a pretext to then make it a proof text to say whatever we want it to say. And that's super dangerous when we're dealing with God's Word. It's super dangerous. It can lead us down paths of unfaithfulness, of self-centeredness. And so the book of Psalms is no different. David wrote the psalm not specifically for Mark in 2022. He wrote it for himself and God's people at the time it was written. In fact, you could say God wrote it through David for that specific time, for that specific people. And so if we could figure out what David is trying to say to the people of Israel and to himself, we can then apply that main point to our lives today. So, if we look at the context, right? The context is key for us, to, if the context is key for us to understand, uh, understanding the overall focus or the meaning of this psalm, then we need to look at the surrounding psalms, especially the two psalms leading up, because these, the book of Psalms is not just random music put together or random poems thrown together going, oh, this looks really good. It's put there for a reason. And it's put in that order for a specific reason. And so we need to look at Psalm 129 and 130. These are part of what is called the Song of Ascents. We talked about this a number of years, uh, years, feels like years ago, weeks ago. These songs of ascents were sung by the people of Israel as they were making their way to Jerusalem, up to Jerusalem, because Jerusalem is in the hills. And so they're ascending to Jerusalem. That's why throughout the Bible this says we're going to go up to Jerusalem or up to Mount Zion. They're making their way up the hills, up the mountains to Jerusalem for the appointed feasts and sacrifices. And so they sang these songs as like a preparation or a call to worship as they're working their way to the temple. And in Psalm 129, it speaks of the people or the nations who are actively working against Israel's good. So the enemies of Israel and how they're 
bringing affliction upon the people of Israel. And then Psalm 130 speaks of the deepness of the psalmist and Israel's sin against the Lord. And so in both, the psalmist finds his confidence in the Lord, for he has saved and redeemed his people from their surrounding enemies and redeemed his people from their own sin. And then comes Psalm 131, a song of David, which answers the question as to how David and Israel are able to find their confidence in their Lord. And ultimately, he teaches us today how we can then do the same in the midst of affliction. And so there are three lessons. That's a great sermon, right? You got the three-point sermon. There are three lessons that God teaches through David's words. Humility, peace and contentment. I'm counting that as one for all of you type A people. And hope and confidence. So humility, peace and contentment, and hope and confidence. So first lesson, humility, verse 1. Let's read this again. We're going to take one verse at a time. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. Now, at first glance, this verse can be read as David's arrogance on display. A, there's nothing too high for me to understand. I'm the king of Israel. I know all things, but that's not the attitude that David has. In actuality, David is meaning the opposite of arrogance. He's being humble. He's speaking directly to God, and he says to the Lord, my heart and eyes and actions are not raised too high. In other words, David doesn't occupy himself with matters of life that are beyond his understanding. Specifically, the afflictions and the troubles of this life. See Psalm 129 and 130. The afflictions of Israel's enemies and the afflictions of his own sin. Now Job learned this same lesson. In the first few chapters of the book of Job, Job's life is going really well until God allowed Satan to do everything imaginable to Job except take his life. And then Job endured 34 chapters of his friends telling him how God is punishing him for his sin, even though there's no evidence that Job has sinned against God. And by the end of the book, Job declares that though he is innocent, he's speaking to God, I am innocent, and even though I haven't sinned against you, God, he might as well have sinned because, and this is a quote in Job 35, verse 3, how am I better off? than if I had sinned. I might as well have sinned, God, because this is, what's, if this, is, this is what happens to sinners. You're making my life miserable. Look what you've done. I might as well have sinned. And then God answers, answers Job, but he doesn't give an explanation as to why these horrible circumstances are happening to Job. In fact, throughout the entire book, if you've ever read through the book of Job, God never tells Job why the afflictions came upon him. All he answers to Job is, I am God and you are not. The most dis unsatisfying answer for any of us. Job 38, verses 2 through 4. This is, these are the words of God in answer 
to Job, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Uh, not really a, if God is, that's the first words out of God's mouth to you. It's a very bad situation for you to be in. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. And then this is one of my favorite parts of Job. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. People say the Bible is boring. There is so much sarcasm in that. Two, those two or three verses and then two chapters worth of God going, why don't you tell me, how, how, how were all the animals created? What was it like to see the sunrise for the first time, Job? And God doing this on purpose to get a hold of Job and to remind him who he is. And so it's Job's response to God after these two chapters, well, really four chapters, of God saying the same thing. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Job responds, and this is what's going to help. And this response is what's going to help us to understand David's words in Psalm 131 better. Job 42, 2 and 3. I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. This is Job speaking to God. And then he quotes God, who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? And then Job says again, therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Like Job, David learned that though we want to know the whys of the afflictions and difficult circumstances of life, we may never be given the answer. For God's ways and God's purposes are too great and too marvelous and too wondrous for our minds to comprehend. Now that doesn't mean like, yay, I have cancer. Yay, I had a loved one pass away. No, that's not. Too marvelous and too wonderful things that are beyond our comprehension. In other words, God knows and we do not. And he does not have to tell us why. He does not. God is God. David is not. God is God. I am not. God is God. You are not. There are circumstances in life which are beyond our understanding as to why they would happen. If I were God, I wouldn't allow afflictions, troubles, and trials to happen to, to his people. At the very least, I can understand why God would cause hardships and afflictions for people who hate him. I mean, that makes sense, right? But why me? I love you, God. Why would you allow such a thing or cause such a hardship to land on me? The one that you have redeemed, the one that you love, the one that you know intimately and deeply. This is, this is where David is. He's the anointed king of Israel whose heart is like God's. And this is David's answer. You are God and I am not. And so I don't lift my heart and my eyes too high in order to understand your ways. I don't occupy myself with things that are beyond my control, things that are too difficult for me to understand. 
Again, if you're looking for a satisfying answer, think throughout your life and the hardships that you've had or people that you know and hardships that they have encountered and they're never given a reason or an answer why it happens. It just happens. It's an unsatisfying and frustrating answer for many of us because we like control. We like to fix things. We want to do whatever it takes to correct an affliction. But we have to ask ourselves a question that my dad always asked me growing up, and I absolutely hated it, and I'm finding I'm asking the same question to myself now, to my children now, because I think they hate it too. And I'll ask us as, as a church right now, as a believer, we want to do whatever it takes to correct an affliction. How's that working out for you? Sometimes it works, but most of the time it doesn't. How does it work out when we attempt to control something that we have no control over? While I was on the bike trip a couple weeks ago, um, got a, a, f- a phone call or a text from my mom that my uncle had passed away, my dad's brother. It's his first sibling to pass away, um, but he was an unbeliever. They had spoken the gospel to him a number of times. His wife and his daughter, my cousin, are both believers, but he, is, he was not. And he rejected the gospel over and over and over again until the day came when he never had a chance to repent because he died. And I could imagine for my father the the frustration and the torment and the sadness. Why, God? Why would you allow him to pass away and not repent, not believe. Why wouldn't you do this, God, in his life? But my dad and my mom and myself, my cousin, my aunt, they had no control over that. You cannot force someone to believe. You cannot force cancer just to go away. You can't uh, force your boss to like you or the bully at school to suddenly be friends with you. You can't force that to happen because it is out of your control. And that can make us frustrated and irritated and angry and impatient. And in the end, the reality is, is it makes us prideful when we strive to control those things that we have absolutely no control over. If I just do this, it'll, okay, now if I just do this, then maybe it'll change. Now, if I do this, as if I have the power to change someone's heart or to destroy cancer or death or sickness. But when we humble ourselves before God, when we lay aside our ego, when we submit to our all-knowing, all-powerful, good and gracious King is when we finally find the peace and contentment that we long to experience, even in the midst of trials and troubles. Is that, that sounds weird, doesn't it? 
I mean, is it just me? That sounds really odd. The only way for me to find peace and contentment in this life, which is filled with affliction, is to humble myself, let go of my ego and my pride, and humble myself before my Father. And that's God's second lesson for David and for us. Peace and contentment. He says, Verse 2, but I, David, have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. The soul is the life and the being of an individual. So in this case, this is, this is who David is. He's let go of his pride and he's humbled himself before his God in the midst of some affliction. And in that mist, he's found peace. So when he says, I've quieted my soul, I've calmed my soul, he's not saying like, well, I strapped my belt a little bit tighter and said, I am peaceful. That's not what he did. He let go of everything and said, God, your ways are bigger than mine. I can't get it. I don't understand it. And so you take care of it. And in that is where his peace comes. But this isn't an Old Testament teaching only. Uh, To the church in Philippi, Paul writes this in Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything... By prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. So he's basically saying, don't be anxious. You you don't have control over so much of this stuff. Instead, by prayer and supplication, that means humbling yourself before God, going to Him, laying it at His feet. Let your requests be made known to God. And what will happen? The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding... It doesn't make any sense, but it's true. We'll guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Or go to 1 Peter chapter 5 with the Apostle Peter. He says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. Give these situations to him so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all of your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Rejoice in the Lord not in your circumstances. And when troubles and affliction arise, don't be anxious, full of worry and fear of danger and of trouble. Instead, humble yourself, throw your fears and anxieties at the feet of God, giving them over to His control. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And David uses this weird word picture. Like a weaned child with its mother is my soul in the presence of God. We will find true and lasting contentment in Him. 
It seems that a newborn child is constantly hungry and is never content for long, right? That's why every, every mother who has a child basically is sleepless for 18 years, right? But especially those first, the first year when the child is so dependent upon the mother. And this is because a mother's milk is, or the formula for the baby The body digests it quickly and soon their belly is empty because they're growing like crazy and they're constantly hungry. Or a teenager, we can even just go that way, okay? But he's using child, so I will try to keep my own personal experience out of that. And when the child gets hungry, what does the baby do? Cries and whines. It's the only way to express itself, to let them know, I am hungry, give me more food. But a child that has been weaned off of the milk and eat solid food is content for longer. And hunger doesn't so easily cause pain and distress that it used to when they were younger. And so it is for those who trust in the Lord. They can endure and persevere through the hunger of affliction and trouble because their peace and contentment is not found in the food of pride and control, but in the reality that God is God. He's the one with the power. He's the one with the knowledge. He's the one with the understanding. And this sounds really strange to our human sensibilities and emotions, but true and lasting peace and contentment is found only when we humble ourselves before God and realize He is the one who's in control of all things and that we won't always know why things happen. And that's okay. That's okay. Because we know the one who does know all things. And I trust him as a child trusts a parent. And that's where God's third lesson is found. Our humility and peace and contentment in times of affliction and trouble are found in our hope and confidence in the Lord. So David shifts from speaking of his own life to urging the people of God to do the same. He says, O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forever." more. So biblical hope is not a wish. It's an expectation. God's people find their confident expectation in the Lord, not in themselves, not in the unbelieving world around them, not in the circumstances of their lives, but confident expectation of what? Okay, I'm confident. I have hope in the Lord. Well, what? What? What am I so confident about? That God's going to suddenly take the cancer away? Well, he may, he may not. So there's got to be something greater than like what is happening in this world right here and right now. Well, what is this expectation of? Well, it's of the Lord's deliverance of his people from their affliction and trouble, just as he has done throughout all the history of Israel. Now, again, that doesn't mean our earthly problems will suddenly disappear when we put our hope in God. More than likely, it'll continue. How many times did God save his people from hunger and thirst in the wilderness? Well, to save them from hunger and thirst, they had to be hungry and thirsty. How many times did he deliver them from slavery and exile for their disobedience? Well, they had to go into slavery and exile in order to be saved from slavery and exile. How many times did he raise up a judge or a king to deliver them from their enemies because of their disobedience? Over and over again, God has faithfully redeemed his people from their enemies 
and from their own sin. And if God has been faithful in the past, those who trust in, in Him today can confidently expect Him to do the same thing today, tomorrow, and forevermore. Because the Lord is always faithful and He always does as He promises. Always. You see, Psalm 131 is a reminder to God's people of His faithfulness to redeem them from the affliction of their enemies and from their sin. Now, before we start to go, okay, well, who is my enemy here on earth? My enemy here on earth is that individual or that individual or that individual. That's not what he's, that's not for us. We're not, we're not looking like the enemies of the United States. Who are the enemies of the United States? Well, that's who God's going to deliver us. No, that is not what he's saying. It's a song which points to and anticipates the ultimate redemption of God's people, of God bringing through His Messiah, Jesus Christ, the redemption of those who have faith in Him. It's pointing to something beyond cancer, something beyond death, something beyond disease or bullies or bad bosses or whatever. It's beyond that. And in a sense, he will redeem us of all of those afflictions here on earth when he brings his people to him in heaven at the end of time. In John 16, Jesus has told his disciples that they will be hated by the world. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you, because a servant is not greater than his master. And the day will soon come when Christ will leave them, he says, and and he will go into heaven to be with his Father. And this is all difficult for the disciples to understand, but frankly, even more so, I think it was kind of disturbing to them. Our teacher is leaving us alone? Well, why would he? And he just got done saying that the world is going to hate you. And how has it hated me? It's going to kill me, a.k.a. it's going to kill you. But then Jesus tells them, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. <laughs> the world's going to kill you. That should give you peace. Well, no, that's not quite what he says, right? Jesus wanted his disciples, both today and then, to find their peace and contentment in him. Because in this world, he says later on, you will have tribulation. You will have trouble. You will have affliction. You will have hardship. But take heart, I have overcome the world. In other words, I have told you these things so that it will drive you to trust me, to let go of your own ego and your own pride and understand that I've got it all worked out so that even if the world kills you, you've got me. And take heart because I've overcome the world. See, the world the world is the afflictions of God's people caused by sin. That is eternal death. Because of our sin against God, we deserve to be away from His presence for all time. But the world is also those who oppose God. And again, we think of individual people here on earth, and that's true to a certain extent, but that's not what Christ is saying. Satan is our enemy. Christ overcame the powers of sin and death by living the perfect sinless life. And he did what none of us could do, fulfilling the demands of the law of God 
bringing eternal life to those who would believe. But Christ also came, overcame the powers of uh, Satan and death by willingly offering his sinless life to pay the penalty of death for the sins of those who believe in him, submit to him, and trust in him. See, our, our battle is not against flesh and blood. Our battle is against the spiritual powers of darkness. As God's people... This is what Christ says, you will have troubles and afflictions and hardships in this world. But our hope and confidence are not found in the things of this world, nor are they found in ourselves and our own strength. Because true peace and contentment, no matter the circumstances of life, are found only through faith and trust in Christ. For as we read about and see God's redemptive promises and acts from the past, as we, first of all, pick this up and we read how God saved his people over and over and over and over again when they put their trust in him. And if you're a believer and you look back on your life and you see how God has saved you, he's gotten you through difficult circumstances if he did it then, he's going to do it today, and he's going to do it tomorrow, and he will do it forevermore. But don't think that for a second the world is going to roll over and not fight back. Satan and his minions are going to work tooth and nail to distract, discourage, and lie to God's people. As God's children, we are never removed from his hands. His love is never taken from us. Once he saves us, we're saved. Now, we still sin, and we still have consequences for those sins, but our eternal life is never removed from us. What sin is too great for Christ to overcome? If you say the unforgivable sin, you should read that. It's unbelief. Unbelief is the only thing that holds us back. If we believe we are saved, but Satan and his demons are going to work hard hard, hard to distract us. But with Christ as the firm foundation of our redemption, we have no need to fear because God is always faithful to his people. We're about ready to sing a song here in a couple minutes called How Firm a Foundation. Very simple song. Very, it's a hymn. My hope and my desire is I want us to, as we're singing these words, I and mean, we should do this anyway, but really work hard on this last song. What are we saying? Here's, here's the words. How firm a foundation, you saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. The truth of God's word is where we are pointed to the truth of Christ redeeming us and saving us, that our only hope is in him. What more can he say to you, he has said, to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled? In my trials and my tribulations, who do I run to? Do I run to myself or do I run to Christ? And if I run to Christ and I submit to him and I trust him, he is my firm foundation. Fear not, I am with you. Oh, be not dismayed. And this is God speaking. For I am your God and will still give you aid. I'll strengthen you, help you, and cause you to stand 
upheld by my righteous omnipotent hand. When through the deep waters I call you to go, now that is a super uncomfortable line, when through the deep waters I, God, call you to go, a.k.a. I'm going to send you through the deeps, the depths of affliction, the rivers of sorrow shall not overflow. For I will be with you, your troubles to bless, and sanctify to, your, to you your deepest distress. When through fiery trials your pathway shall lie, again, he's going to send us through fiery trials, my grace all sufficient shall be your supply. The flame shall not hurt you. I only design your dross to consume and pull to refine. God sends us through trials and tribulations to sanctify us, to change us. Like metal and gold is put through the crucible, the dross is removed, and you're left with more pure gold than before you started. He's changing us. Now, that doesn't mean the crucible doesn't happen. It doesn't mean that the crucible is not painful for us. But in the end, it will not destroy us. It may kill us, but it will not destroy us because He is making us into the man and the woman that He wants us to become. And then our, the final verse. Was all that on Jesus has leaned to, for repose, I will not, I will not desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, hell is going to work over time to shake our faith as his people. I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. Never. In this world, we will have troubles and afflictions, but our hope and our confidence is found in Him. Our enemies will fight, perhaps even destroy us, but the flames of those trials will only strengthen our resolve to trust in Him more and more. Though all hell should endeavor to shake our faith, we'll never, no never, no, no never forsake, because He never forsakes us, ever because he has always promised. He has always promised to exalt us, to be with him forever and ever. God, I pray that these words are an encouragement to us. Some of us right now are facing tough trials. Some of us are at our wit's end. We've hit the bottom of the barrel. We've we're lost, God. We don't know where to turn. Some, some of us will be facing that tomorrow or this week or in the coming years. Things that are out of our control. And Father, we don't know where to turn. Remind us these words, God, and say, your hope is not in yourself or in this world. Your hope is in me. You are our God. You are the one who knows all things. And so, Father, give us the strength, give us the desire, give us the ability to humble ourselves before you, to let go of our pride and our ego, and to give you the control of our life, for you know all things, and you are all-powerful. Our lives are in your hands, and you always know best. And so even if these afflictions should take our lives, Father, our soul stands firm. It is quiet 
like a child before its mother. We trust you, God. We trust you. Remind us, God, of who you are and who we are in you. In your name, amen. Why don't you stand as we sing How Firm a Foundation.